Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. go speak at UNC, they cheer, and uh, when I go to Duke or State, they kind of give me the response that you just gave me, because you're trying to be a little bit polite, uh, so I make them boo me, and that's just a fantastic way to start uh, being booed, so uh, at least you didn't boo me this morning. Uh, I've been really eager to come spend time with you. Uh, I've prayed a lot about this conversation. Uh, I'm asking the Lord to, to raise you up. Uh, we need the most gifted communicators uh, possible. Uh, we need deeper lovers. Uh, we need men and women who are inspired by the greatness of Jesus to change the very fabric of the cities that we work in and live in. Uh, and so I have great hope for you. Uh, I want to come, and, and I was talking to my wife this morning. I, I want to be a, a lover of you. I want to encourage you deeply. Uh, I want to give you the, the gospel in a way that, that might be challenging. Uh, and so I'm thankful for this institution. I'm really glad that it's in my city. Uh, I am grateful for Dr. Aiken and the time and love that he has given me and Vintage Church. Uh, and so we're going to be in 1 Thessalonians today. Uh, if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn to chapter 2. Uh, we'll go through verses 1 through 7. Uh, but I'm going to need just a minute to make my case uh, and get us to a certain place. And, and so here's my case. Um, the pressures that are being put on pastors and leaders are considerable, uh, far more extreme than seminaries and local churches are training these pastors for. And so we find ourselves in a very desperate need to rise up thousands of leaders. Uh, and if we don't do that, we're going to be unable to engage the culture that's around us. And, and so what needs to happen is for you to become more sophisticated in communicating the gospel and more winsome in winning people over than you've really ever imagined. And, and we're going to have to get to that place because of uh, where we're functioning. The South, especially the urban South, is a crucible for Christianity and for churches. Uh, let me explain it to you just for a moment. Uh, I work with a lot of church plants, as you just heard, with Acts 29. We do stuff in the Northeast and in Europe. Uh, and as you look at how churches in Europe and the Northeast went from uh, places of Christendom to not being places that know Jesus at all, their pattern was pretty similar. Uh, in Scotland, for example, we work with a church plant there, and I have a close friend. And, and the, the journey to go post-Christian was like this. Uh, they were a Christian nation. Uh, they became culturally Christian, where they were pretty just uh, unaware of what the gospel really was, wrapped up in quaint moralism. Uh, it went to a place where they became angry towards Christianity. That anger turned to indifference, and that indifference now is they're just totally unaware. They're unaware of the New Testament. They're unaware of the Scriptures. Uh, they're unaware of anything to do with Jesus. And so you have conversations in Scotland and the Northeast, and, and you're, you're beginning everything with them. Now, in the South, we started that same journey to uh, being a post-Christian culture. Uh, we started with being Christian. Uh, we went to culturally Christian. It went quickly to anger. And now it doesn't rest in a place of indifference. The South, the urban South, hates you. They hate you. You are the cause of all of the political issues in our country. You are. 
you're bigots. You're homophobes. Uh, they're going to pull a blade out and chase you. That's how extreme and intense the place that we do ministry is. Uh, my church experiences this. Uh, I love the church that I'm a part of. The family is just uh, significant in my life. Uh, we're thriving in the crucible. Um, there are weeks where we have baptisms and there is literally a line uh, to be baptized. Uh, men who are CEOs of large companies who hated Christianity and would swear they would never do anything under the roof of a church or follow Jesus. Uh, standing up in front of the congregation and professing the greatness of Jesus and, and being baptized. And when I see that, it's like watching the Holy Spirit on a television screen. It, it's so vivid. It's so right there in front of me. It, it captures my heart. And uh, we have people going into high-rise buildings in downtown Raleigh uh, where rent is $1,500 for a studio per month. Uh, and these men and women uh, want to make money, want to be successful, and will do anything to get ahead in life. And as we study Scripture together and as we open up uh, the depths of the gospel, we, we see salvations happen and we see uh, lives being transformed. And uh, being a part of this church is just absolutely unique for me. Uh, we're a city church. And as a city church, we're trying to engage the, the most lost segment of society. Uh, we have creatives in our church, uh, probably the most creative people in our city, from photographers to graphic designers uh, to artists to musicians. And they're using their skill set to try to make Jesus known in the most innovative ways possible. Uh, we're trying to change the fabric of our society as a church. Uh, one of our goals is to plant 20 ministries in the next 20 years and have these ministries engage the plight of lost men and women. So uh, we've started at Carol's Kitchen, which was on WRAL yesterday, uh, a ministry to help uh, homeless women find jobs and meet Jesus in the process. We have incubated and launched Layers of Dignity, which meet women who have been sexually abused in the ER and give them dignity and hope in the most shameful moments of their lives. Uh, and in this, we're, we're doubling down on Jesus. We're not a social justice church. Uh, we're a gospel church. We're a Jesus church. And so every week we're calling people to repent and come and see the greatness of Jesus. And as all of these things are happening, here's how society meets us. Uh, here's what's going on. Uh, we have articles written about us in local magazines that we're homophobes, that we hate culture, that we oppress women. Uh, we have men come up and kick our door in, not to come and steal things out of our church building, but to urinate into the sanctuary and leave. That's just hatred. Uh, we have people step back when you say you work for a church. My next door neighbors, who are about four blocks from our church, when they found out that I was a pastor, you would have thought I said, I just got out of jail as a person who murdered somebody else. This is your culture and your climate. And the sophistication and the winsomeness that you're going to need to be ministers and leaders in the local church is, I think, far beyond anything that you might have imagined. Gender issues, sexuality, and a hyper-polarized erotic culture are going to eat you alive at first. And I'm not degrading you or belittling you, quite the opposite. You're the hope of the church for us. But it's like uh, you've been in boot camp and you're about to go into combat. And when you get shot at, you're just not yet ready for those things. You will be sued someday, probably as a minister of the gospel. You will be taken to court, and you will be called a bigot, and you will uh, have charges brought against you. And in that, you're going to have to learn to love even those people who have come against you in the deepest of ways. Because of Me Too and racism and politics, uh, you're going to have to learn the capacity and the ability 
to say the truths of the gospel, to call people to the obedience of following Jesus, and have them know that you deeply love them. And so humbly, uh, we are in a significant deficit of raising up the type of men and women who can engage the South, especially the urban South. And I think 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 is an amazing way for us to begin to develop this sophistication, this shrewdness, as Jesus would have said. It says this in verse 1, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. Uh, Now, I'd like to suggest that you don't say something like it was not in vain unless there's some kind of question in in your mind that maybe it was in vain. I think Paul's thinking back over those three weeks that he spent preaching on the Sabbath in Thessalonica, and he's maybe considering that they didn't do very much good. If you know Acts chapter 17, you know the story pretty well. Uh, Paul came, he was known as one of the people turning upside down the entire world. Uh, Some of the hardline Jews became followers of Christ, but many turned on Paul and Silas. And so they got together angry brawlers, and they started a mob scene. They went to the house of Jason and they kicked in the door thinking that Paul and Silas were there and they couldn't find Paul. And so they collared Jason and drug him out into the street and just started a scene. Now, I've had really bad months, but I know this for sure. When brawlers with chains show up at your church, things aren't going as well as you might think they're going. If this happened to you, what do you think your response would have been? Would you be distraught? Would you wonder if you had just caused suffering in Jason's life? Was there anything of good happening in those places? I, I realized with the introduction, trying to call us to uh, be a group of men and women that have a sophistication and winsomeness that we don't yet have, that I w- want to be real careful with you. Because this is going to be the reality for some of us, for many of us maybe. You're going to go into a place of ministry, and you're going to labor for a year or three years, maybe ten years, and at the end of those ten years, you're not going to have any fruit to show for it, and you're going to feel like everything that you've done is in vain. You've heard uh, too many rock stars, probably, and so this is hard to ingest. You've heard J.D. Greer too often preach, and 10,000 people will come, and I love J.D. You've had Joby Martin here plant a church and 3,000 people will show up in the very first day. And so this is just really hard to swallow because grandeur is on your screen and not ministry that might potentially be in vain. So if I could help you peer into the future just a little bit, I was with a group of pastors just uh, two weeks ago in San Diego, and all the men that were there had planted their churches, and they had all grown into megachurches. They were doing ministry outside of their churches, so they had some kingdom-mindedness. And to each person, they all said, ministry has been far more difficult than I ever imagined. It seems like it's run me over, and I wonder if the years of my life have just been in vain. Paul and Silas look back, and they think probably uh, they caused suffering and pain, and it was in vain. And yet if you look right back in 1 Thessalonians, in chapter 1, verses 5 through 7, you get some idea of the outcome of their three weeks of preaching the gospel. It says this, our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia. And it keeps going, but that's the gist. And so right now, I I think you know something as a cliché. 
And if you decide to do ministry outside of the walls of the safety of this great institution, the cliche that you know now is going to become your reality. You're going to pour your soul into some area of ministry, and it's going to flatline. That is ahead of you. You're going to wonder if you've lost the vitality of your youth and the fullness of your soul. And here's where the cliche that you know now becomes beautiful. You just never know what the Holy Spirit's doing and how the Holy Spirit is working. And right now, that seems like a normative thing for you to hear. But in the moment that you've suffered and you've ministered in vain, those words are going to make you weep. And you're going to be thankful that God does things beyond your capacity. Paul thought he was in vain, but if you look at that passage, the gospel came in power and in word. The Holy Spirit brought conviction. They became imitators of Jesus, and they affected cities far beyond them. It seems to me a lot like the Old Testament, and many tens of thousands of pastors and, and women leaders who have gone before you. It sounds like Hebrews eleven thirteen. 13. All these people were still living by faith, it says, when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. So here's your role as you leave this place when that day comes. Uh, your role is to make much of the name of Jesus and call people to leave everything to follow him and to be transformed into his very likeness. And if your ministry, your church grows and blows up and explodes, you did nothing. It was all the work of the Holy Spirit. And if you labor for years and there's no fruit, you're just wrong because the Holy Spirit has worked in power and the same effects that happened in Thessalonica are happening in the place of your ministry. So there's this reality that begins to develop uh, that you do ministry and, and it seems in vain. And if you're going to develop the ability to continue to minister and you're going to have some sophistication, that sophistication is going to develop in the crucible. It's going to happen in fire. And it's exactly where Paul takes it next. In verse 2, it says this, uh, but, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. Paul was shamefully treated. Why? Because he made much of Jesus, people were being saved, and the city was being turned upside down. If people find out that you're a follower of Jesus, you're going to be shamefully treated. You're going to be rejected. You're going to be ridiculed. But I think maybe some of the reason that we're rejected and we're hated is very much different than why the Thessalonians hated Paul and Silas. When people hear that you are a follower of Jesus or a pastor, they're going to immediately associate you with politics, and they're going to treat you shamely because of it. And I don't want you to mishear me. We should be active in politics, and there's some political things that we should fight for to the ends of our lives. I'm so thankful for people like Russell Moore and all the work that he does. But here's the problem. When you go into urban environments and you say you're a follower of Christ, they immediately associate you with conservative politics and everything that they hate, and they're going to place that on you. And if you don't learn some capacity to hold tight to your convictions on a political level, but to preach the kingdom of God more than you preach anything else, you will lose every opportunity that you hope to have to share the gospel with the least, the last, and the lost. You have to go and not make much of the United States or anything else. Instead, say our hope and our mercy and our joy and our salvation and our eternity is with a different king and a different kingdom. Don't be known for your politics. 
You'll be shamefully treated, and that's okay, but be shamefully treated for the right reasons because you're making much of Jesus. Some of you will be shamefully treated because you'll tell people that you're a follower of Christ, and they're going to immediately associate you with moralism, and probably we deserve that. Because quaint moralism has been the gospel that we've been preaching for 50 years, 100 years. All they can hear is, as you talk about Jesus, are things like, oh, I can't drink alcohol. Which, to my lost friends in downtown Raleigh, is bizarre. It's just bizarre. They're going to hear, I can't cuss. Because the king of kings on a throne can't hear four-letter English words. And to them, they're going to think this is such an outrageous, outdated thing. And they're going to reject you and reject Jesus, not because of Jesus, but because of our moralism that we have put on them. And so maybe you've had nothing to do with the development of these things, but it's going to be placed on you. And you know what? You're strong enough to take it. You're strong enough to be embarrassed publicly. You're strong enough to apologize for things that you've never done. And to stand before men and women who are image bearers of God, and though they hate you, declare to them, I love you, I have no enemy on this planet, and I will do anything I can to show you the greatness of the gospel. You'll suffer, and it's going to be okay. And Paul's so aware um, of ministry and what ministry is like, uh, that when you suffer, uh, that suffering might change your motives. And if your motives change, and if your motives become suspect, everybody that you are trying to love will catch that immediately, and they'll discount you. Uh, Paul goes on to motives in verses 3 through 6. He says this, For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. So we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never come with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext of greed. God is witness. Nor do we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. As a leader, um, your life is going to be an open book. Not because you're so noble that you're going to be held accountable by everybody who hears you or sees you. You should. I hope that you'll give accountability over to other people. But the people that you minister to are smart, and they're intuitive, and they catch everything. And so no matter what you do or what you say, your motives are just on display, and everybody is going to see those. And so Paul says, you better really protect and be careful with your motives. And he gives a couple of motives here that are just essential for us. Uh, The first motive is the only thing that you should want for your church and for your city is mercy, forgiveness, salvation, and sanctification. That's what you should want over everything else. And so what you should do is check every email before you send it. You should watch every single word that you speak up front to make sure there's no error, as it just said, in love in this passage. That there's nothing impure that you're trying to develop. Every single word that you speak is from a pure motive. Preach for six months and see if that's the case. The next motive that he says you need to be real careful of is don't dare speak to please the ears of men, but speak to please God who tests your heart. Never remove a word from the scriptures. 
Never add a word to the scriptures. My call today to become winsome and sophisticated is not to hide the gospel, change the scriptures, and try to make something more palatable to a lost world. I'm not saying that on any level at all. Let's preach sin. Let's preach repentance. Let's call people to conviction and confession. We have to do that. That's the source of us seeing our need for Christ. But understand this as you're trying to please God. When you stand in front of lost and dying people, they are children of God, still lost, bearing his image, and you should love them like the prodigal father loved the son in Luke chapter 15. That's the way that you have a pure motive. You can say hard things because they know that you love them. And then the last motive that he says, guard here really careful, is this, never seek glory. And probably that's the moment that inside, or maybe you have enough boldness to verbally say amen. Somebody should have amen that, because here's the reality. If your church or your ministry grows even a little bit, you're in massive danger. You're in massive danger believing that you did this, that there's something unique about you that let ministry grow that God has special favor for you and you're gonna start seeking God's glory and I am uh, absolutely terrified of ever stealing the glory of God. And so be careful not to seek glory, but instead to give glory uh, to Jesus. So uh, there's no ministry in vain. Uh, you're gonna suffer in the crucible. It can make you sophisticated. When you suffer, you should watch your motives. And then it brings us finally to this place of how we might develop this one thing that we're not yet as young men and women. Uh, if you go through Acts and you look at Acts 15, 16, and 17 as uh, Paul and Silas go from Iconium uh, to Lystra to Antioch to Thessalonica, uh, they became known as the people turning the world upside down. And that's what I've been praying for you over the last week, that you'd be such ferocious women and such formidable men that you would literally change the fabric of the society that we live in. That culture would complain that you guys ruined the porn industry, that you guys stopped the sex slave industry, that you guys were the ones that solved uh, the inequities between uh, races in our country, not for social justice, but for the fame and the glory of a God who did justice for us, uh, that you'd be those men and women. But we're going to have to come to this place where we realize we're not there yet, and it's okay. As you study Paul's life, now Paul is able to come into a city and make better connections than we make. Why is that? Why did he engage culture more effectively than most churches are engaging culture today? Why was he able to go in and even with the most hardened men and women preach the gospel and, and, and see salvations happen? Some of it was relentlessness. Some of it was faith and trust. Uh, but I think a lot of it is this, especially as you look um, in First and Second Thessalonians and, and you get into First and Second Timothy, I think Paul confesses pretty often. I was kind of a jerk at first. I, I would like to say other things, but I don't cuss in my sermon, so I'll leave it there. Um, but you see him not loving people well. And then you see him start to love people a little bit more. And then finally later in his ministry, I think he has remorse that, that he wasn't known primarily as someone who loves deeply uh, Paul became a deep lover of other people. Just listen to chapter 2, verse 7. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. You will never 
try to understand the plight and the life of a homosexual man unless you love him with affectionate desire. You will never love a guy that came into our church about four weeks ago. Uh, he came in with two large bags and put them over to the side. And he had a large camera and latex gloves on and a hat that said locked and loaded and a knife. And he very aggressively started filming our services. And so we kind of graciously pulled him over to the side and my security folks kind of got amped up with him. And I quickly got in between the security people and this guy and walked outside with him and tried to, with affectionate desire, love this man. And then he just started pouring how, how his life was just a mess and how he clearly had mental issues. You'll never be able to reach people that are broken unless you look at them with affectionate desire. And when a woman writes an article about your church and makes your soul bitter, you'll mistreat her. You'll write counter arguments thinking that that'll help. Or in your soul, affectionate desire will rise up for her and you'll treat her as Jesus has treated you. There's no way that you will overcome a man kicking your door in and urinating on your floor and not become this isolated, self-centered, introspective church unless your church people know there's no enemy in the city of ours. They're all greatly beloved by Jesus and we are for them. You see, love is the gateway of winsomeness. Love is the thing, the force that allows you to develop a sophistication that enables you to tell the truth while simultaneously those men and women whom you're convicting know you would die for them. And so this love is never a word, it's always a pouring out of your life. It's why Paul equates you, the pastor, and I'm talking especially to men right now, he equates men as pastors to a nursing mother. That's the analogy here. That's the example here. Not swagger, not bravado, not macho, not I have confidence, but you are like a nursing mother because a nursing mother pours her life out for a child over and over and over. And so I just want to be as humble as I can with this, and I hope you receive this in love. If you can't have affectionate desire well up in your heart for your church and your city, stay in academia. Go into the business world and don't open your mouth about Jesus, not yet at least. Go into a ministry unoriented with the, the dying world, unengaged with the city, and, and, and wait for the Lord to begin to develop these things in, in your life. Because here's what's coming before you. I met with a doubter last week. Uh, this man is brilliant beyond anybody I've ever sat with, and I've sat with endless doctors and PhDs. Uh, he has taken three companies public. We had conversation um, that was honest, more honest than the last 20 meetings that I've had with Christians. Uh, it was wild. I was praying the whole time, begging the Holy Spirit, help me keep up, love up, listen up, understand anything he's saying because he's so much smarter than I am. And it was absolutely vulgar. It was vulgar like crazy. And in that moment, again, like watching the Holy Spirit work on a television, I could see the Holy Spirit grabbing his heart. And I'm speaking metaphorically and not Pentecostally, so don't worry, but I could see the Holy Spirit working in, in that moment, right? And as I sat with this guy, if I had let even for a second him saying that worship at Vintage and every other church is BS, he said the whole thing though, if I had had any negative response, I'd have lost him entirely. And he just kept talking. You raise your hands like crazy people. What's wrong with you guys? 
I'm like, yeah, but you're there every week. And he goes, yeah, I know. <laughs> if I let his conversation about erotic sexuality in a local pub disturb me, he pounded on me. He came aggressively after me. And now he wants our families to get together. Why? Just one thing. I'm not as smart as he is. I'm not as capable as he is. He knew I had affectionate desire for him. He knew it. Isn't this what Jesus did in his ministry? Like we often quote that, that verse um, that he was surrounded with thieves and prostitutes and, and the worst kind of ruckus people. And I think sometimes in our minds, we, we kind of think um, uh, maybe, I mean, maybe he was just accused of that and he didn't really do that, but he never denies it. And I think Jesus would have set that straight if it wasn't true. And so then our, our minds go to, well, it was probably, you know, a pretty gracious, uh, short, brief interaction where prostitutes came up and fist bumped Jesus and, and then moved on. And uh, thieves talked to Jesus like you talked to Dr. Aiken. You, you kind of stumble around a little bit and you try to say some smart words. And then later you think, I was a bumbling idiot. And that's kind of how thieves talk to Jesus just for a, li a little bit. That's what you think. But that wasn't it at all. Like he was accused of spending all of his time with prostitutes and thieves. And that was a vulgar thing. And it was a messed up, dirty conversation and there's drunkenness and Jesus loved them with affectionate desire. And that's the thing that won him over, affectionate desire. And so I just gotta be honest, like parts of this passage made me blush a little bit. I have affectionate desire for one woman and I can't explain any of that because that would be wrong. That's how I've always attributed affectionate desire. And so I started to think, well, how did Paul come up with this idea? Like a nursing mother, you're supposed to love with this depth. And it's not, it's not difficult to find out how he came up with it. He simply is treating the world, Paul is, like Jesus had treated him. He's simply reading scripture and doing what scripture says. He knew Isaiah chapter 49. It says, can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she was born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. And, and we can say this is just about Israel, but with Jesus, it, it's certainly about the entire world. And, and to think that the good God in heaven on the highest throne looks down and has on his hands engraved people. I mean, that's kindness and mercy and goodness that should be the dissertations of our ministry. That's what it should be. Your friends that are doubters and seekers are ingrained, engraved, etched, hewed out of your heart in such a way that you just treat them like they're your nursing child. And, and that is so um, intimate and is so other than most of our preparations for ministry, it's hard for us to even swallow. Or Hosea 11, two and three. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arms, but they did not realize it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. To them, I was like one who lifts a little child to the cheek and I bent down to feed them. I thought affectionate desire was only for the lover of your soul who you're intimate with. And then I had a child and a second child and a third child. 
and I held that little infant just seconds after they were born, and every ounce of love that I had for my wife transferred on that child immediately, and I lifted each of those children up and declared my life would serve them and love them, and I would do anything that they would see Jesus, and I would use everything that I had to, to make their lives good and, and, and worthy, and that's exactly how God has treated you, and that's exactly how we're supposed to treat uh, the city that we live in. Can you love the world like a mama loves her children? We're good at exegeting scripture. We're okay at exegeting culture. And I think we're pretty poor at exegeting the human heart. And that's why we don't have the sophistication and the winsomeness that we need to reach a lost and dying culture. People around you are rejecting Christianity and it's devastating. They're not rejecting Jesus. They're rejecting quaint moralism, but they attribute Jesus with quaint moralism. So as they walk away from quaint moralism, they're also walking away from Jesus, though they never knew Jesus. And so what we are walking into is not uh, zero on the scale of one to 10. That's where the Northeast and Europe is. I have no knowledge at all of scripture or Jesus. That's zero you're walking into a crucible where the average person in the urban South and the South is negative five or negative six. They think they've rejected Jesus that they never knew him. They rejected us as religious people. And so our role is much more difficult than it's supposed to be. With affectionate desire, can you love your church? With affectionate desire, can you come and you love those you disciple? And can you love the least, the last and the lost? Right now, the lost hate you. They hate you, but you have no enemy. No one who does any pain towards you is someone that you should ever take out vengeance or retaliation. No one has ever destroyed your church or written about you in very personal ways that would make your heart stay awake in the night. No matter how many people take cheap shots of criticism, none of these people are your enemy. Actually, it's quite the opposite. These are the men and women of whom Jesus scoured the earth for. Like desperately looking for these men and women. Have you ever read Luke 15 all together? These men and women are the one lost sheep who he says, I'll leave 99 to go find this one little tiny lost sheep. He scoured the earth, taking their lostness on himself. They're the lost coin who the woman would turn over the world to find. It's the prodigal daughter of whom Jesus came to find. This is uh, the most urgent pursuit that Jesus has, finding these lost sons and daughters. And he's inviting you to join this pursuit. And the hope that you have is doing the work that you've done, learning with clarity the scriptures, exegeting with excellence, understanding the depths of the gospel, and then the other half of the work begins. Where you look at culture and you don't isolate, you don't judge, you don't condemn, but you sit with doubters who are vulgar. You sit with doubters who hate you and with affectionate desire, you nurse them like a mother. That's the scriptures. And I pray that you would be a generation of men and women that would rise up turn the tide of the culture, be known as those who turn the world upside down, 
And as we change the fabric of our cities, Jesus would be made much of and many would worship him. Let's pray. God, we ask uh, that in this moment, the Holy Spirit would be really good to us. I love these young men and women. It is such a privilege to be here today. These people are the hope of the church. They're the next group of folks that will take Jesus faithfully to Raleigh and Durham, to Atlanta, to New York City, to Southeast Asia, to the ends of the earth. Lord, pray, I do, that 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 would be encouraging to us, Lord. There's a, there's a hard part to this, that maybe we're not yet prepared in the way that we need to be. But Lord, uh, with Jesus loving us with affectionate desire, we have all of, the, uh, all of the tools, all of the examples, all of the hope as the Holy Spirit indwells inside of us, God. Would the Spirit give us the ability and the power uh, to love in the way that Jesus loved us? It's in your name, Jesus, that we pray these things. Amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We covet your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.